In January of 2002, the Boston Globe published a story with the headline, Church Allowed Abuse by Priest for Years. The article reads, Since the mid-1990s, more than 130 people have come forward with horrific childhood tales about how former priest John J. Gagan allegedly fondled or raped them during a three-decade spree through a half-dozen greater Boston parishes. Almost always, his victims were grammar school boys. One was just four years old. This Boston Globe article, and the series of articles that followed it, went on to reveal widespread crimes in the American Roman Catholic Church, who not only knew about the priests that were sexually abusing children, but also took steps to protect those priests from criminal ramifications. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 119, Spotlight. This episode is part of a larger series about literary theory. In preparation for this episode, we have watched the movie Spotlight, which came out in 2015. You may want to watch the movie before proceeding. We also recommend first listening to the other episodes in this series about Tar, Rocky, and Black Swan. Okay, Tyler, I'm getting to know your question today. If you were headed out on a road trip, what is a snack or snacks that you would not want to embark without? I love this question. I have so many opinions about this, actually, <laughs> because I love road trips, actually. That's what, like one of my favorite things, um, and I've done a lot of them, and I have my snack selection down to a T at this point. So my go-to setup for a road trip is obviously a Fountain Dr. Pepper from 7-Eleven in the cup holder. Sure. And then I also like to have three things. Number one is pretzels. Number two is hot Cheetos. Ooh, okay. Number three is Cheez-Its. And I actually like to mix them. Oh, okay. Because I am of the opinion that Hot Cheetos are too spicy by themselves. Mm-hmm. Pretzels are too bland by themselves. And all three, I think, have a nice little synergy together. <laughs> so that's that is... a special road trip mix. I feel like that's the kind of thing that you should be able to buy already. Yeah. Yeah. And there are there are actually some things like that. Like, you know, the yeah. munchies. Yeah. yeah that's kind of similar, right? Yeah. Um, also happy to swap out goldfish. Like I think some kind of like cheese cracker seems to mm-hmm. fill the third roll pretty yeah. well. Uh, but that I really like that. And if the road trip is under two hours, I think that's usually substantial. If it's like over five hours, I find myself starting to want something that's like a little bit more material. So sometimes I'll grab like like sliced meats or cheeses. Because it feels more like food, you know, at that yeah. point. Um, and it's always nice to throw in some peanut M&Ms, too. Sometimes you need, like, a little a little sweet. So I think that's what I would say. That is an excellent setup. And, I mean, I don't think anybody will doubt that you have put some thought and the experience <laughs> into that answer. That's great. I love that. Um, so my answer, if I had to pick one, um, I would... 
pick past the hot Cheetos and past the pretzels and just okay. cheese its for me. Cheez-Its, okay. I am a Cheez-It man through oh, and through. They're so um, good. We got a Costco card and we sometimes buy Costco-sized bags of Cheez-Its. <laughs> wow. And my wife has to hide them. Like we have to ration them out and be like, this Ziploc <laughs> bag is all we get to eat this week. So if you eat all of these, we don't get any more Cheetos. Like she has to talk to me like I'm one of our small children because I can eat, if you, I could eat an entire big, like two pound box of those Cheez-Its in a day. No, no questions asked. Wow. So I will take, I'm pretty particular about that. I want Cheez-Its. I actually agree as well that in a pinch, you could swap out goldfish. I like a goldfish. Oh yeah. Okay. But the Cheez-It is the, I would say the superior cracker. Mm. And then as long as I've got Cheez-Its, um, I will be content with almost any other candy. Mm, so I, I do kind of want to balance, um, and I, I would want something sweet, but I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a, I'll take pretty much anything you throw at me candy-wise. I'm very easy to please. So a little pack of Mike and Ikes, some Skittles, Starburst. I mean, it, there's very few wrong answers. As long as I got Cheez-Its and then a little, a little uh, sweet snack, a little bit of candy, I'm, I'm, I'm there. That's perfect. Delicious. Wait, and what are you drinking? Oh, um, yeah, probably. If I was going to get a soda, it would definitely be Dr. Pepper. Mm. But probably, yeah, probably Dr. Pepper. Maybe water. I, I'm a big water drinker, so I might be boring mm. enough to bring my water but if i feel like i need it to uh keep me like awake like the caffeine yeah the caffeine and also that's another thing i like about cheese it's is for a road trip it kind of gives my hands something to do like the snacking oh, i think is yeah. an important part of it is it kind of keeps me occupied while i'm driving so something to sip on well yeah it'd probably be a dr pepper and then mm, my sweet cheese i'm hungry now this was a bad idea I <laughs> yeah, that sounds really good <laughs> So we are continuing on in our series today about literary theory. And at this point in the series, this is now our fourth episode. And in the three previous, we talked about three different lenses of literary criticism. Remember, we talked about feminism when we looked at the movie Tar. We talked about Marxism when we looked at the movie Rocky. And we looked at psychological criticism when we watched the movie Black Swan. And today we have, in preparation for this episode, watched the movie Spotlight from the year 2015. And this won the Oscar for Best Picture that year. And Race, had you seen the movie before we watched it for the episode? I had not. This was, the, um, the, this was my first exposure to it. I'm so excited to talk about it. It's a real treat. Yeah. Um, I had seen it a couple of times and every time I've watched it, I just, I feel like blown away by the end. It's a really, really powerful movie with an incredible story. Um, And as we talk about Spotlight, we'll also be introducing a new lens of literary theory, which is called formalism. So that's what we'll talk about um, in this episode today. But I want to also give a chance here for any, any listeners who have not watched the movie Spotlight and would like to do so, I would say go ahead and pause the podcast now. Take a look at the film. It's really wonderful. And then unpause when you're ready. (laughs) All right. So back to it. Um, The lens of literary criticism that we will address today is called 
formalism. And Wikipedia defines formalism as a school of literary criticism and literary theory that centers on the structural purposes of a text. And what is structural purposes? I think that's kind of vague. Um, but the important thing here is to remember the word formalism is really a revolving around this prefix of form. So structural purposes of the text, this means that we're talking not only about the content of what is in the text, but the form in which it is presented. And you'll remember in our episode about Stephen Sondheim, we talked about his distinction between those two things. Content dictates form. The content of a text is different from the form that it is presented in. Hmm. So for example, take the story, The Odyssey, by the ancient Greek orator Homer. If you were to, quote, read the Odyssey, you could do this in a couple of different ways. You could actually, first of all, read the book. There are English translations of it that are available to just flip through and read. Uh, you can also watch it. There's a mini series that was filmed in the 1990s. There's also a very good episode of the TV show Wishbone. I don't know if you've seen that one, race, but that episode really stuck with me as a kid. Um, so there's, you can watch that. Uh, but the ancient Greeks themselves would have listened to the Odyssey because it was first composed as a spoken word poem. Homer was an orator, and that's how uh, poems were performed back in those days. Uh, so there's a lot of different forms of the Odyssey and formalism as a literary theory takes these separate forms of the text very seriously. Even though the Odyssey is just one story, formalism says that the form of the story matters as part of the literary criticism process. And so in the case of the Odyssey, if you're going to talk about the form, you should talk about those three things separate from each other. Now, this is a pretty different type of literary criticism compared to the other three lenses that we looked at before. Uh, we talked about with Tar, we talked about feminist literary criticism, right? We were talking about Lydia Tar as a woman and what that did for the movie. And with Rocky, we talked about how his class and his low income played a factor in that story. And with Black Swan, we talked about how Nina has kind of an unreliable mind and her psyche is really affecting what happens in Black Swan. But in each of the cases of those movies, we never really talked about how being a movie impacts those three texts. Does that make sense? Yeah. Kind of different, right? So this is a, a lens of literary criticism that I would say is less like ideological than the others. You can kind of think of feminism, Marxism, psychological criticism, those all kind of have an ideology that they're pushing, whereas formalism is simply about how does literary form work? Yeah, well, and as a matter of fact, like a formalist, I think, would would have sat and listened to us do what we did to those movies, and they'd say, you're adding a bunch of stuff, right? Like, you're, yes. you're mm -hmm. talking about, um, you know, the Me Too movement and what was going on in 2021 when Tar was being filmed and the culture around it. And none of that is within, you know, kind of the four corners of the movie. And we should look at what is in the movie and how it does what it does, rather than thinking about the culture that created it or what the motivation of the filmmaker would be, right? Like, I'm on the right track here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's very true. And um, 
we'll talk a little bit further about this, but there's, I think, a tendency in formalism to almost ignore every outside influence. If it's yeah. not in the text, then it does not relate. That's kind of interesting and very different from what we've talked about this far in the series. Yeah. And I mean, for, for a formalist, that would be a feature and not a bug, right? Like this yes. is the mm -hmm. point of this is to t take only what is in the work and then kind of evaluate it on its own merits, which is an interesting, but like you're saying, very different idea from everything we've talked about so far. Very much. So Wikipedia also says, quote, formalism rejects or sometimes simply ignores for the purposes of analysis, notions of culture or societal influence, authorship and content, and instead focuses on modes, genres, discourse and forms. It reduces the importance of a text's historical, biographical and cultural context. That's basically what you just said, right? Yeah. Um, instead of talking about the culture that's surrounding the text or the author that created it, formalism is saying, what is in the text? That's all we care about. And when we studied this in college in the English major, we often did formalist literary criticism, um, first of all, with literature. And so we were examining literary structures, things like grammar, syntax, poetic form, rhyme, meter, paragraph structure in prose, description, characterization. These are all things that prose and poetry do as forms, right? Um, but since this episode is about a movie, we'll take it a little bit of a different direction. And we'll have to do this instead, not by talking about literary forms, but about cinematic forms and the things that only movies are capable of doing. And we'll talk more about that later. Wikipedia also says that formalism rose to prominence as a reaction against romanticist theories of literature, which centered on the artist and individual creative genius. Once again, placing the text itself in the spotlight to show how the text was indebted to forms and other works that had preceded it. So if there's kind of a concept of an author dictating the text or an author having some kind of genius that produces their work, formalism rose as a way of reacting against that idea and saying, we don't want to talk about the author. We only want to talk about what is here on the page. Yeah, we don't care how this got here or who brought it to us, but yes. what is what is there to be examined in front of us? Very much. And we actually did the opposite of that with all three movies. We were always yeah. talking about Todd Field, or Rocky, or excuse me, Sylvester Stallone, or what's his name that did uh, Black Swan, Darren Aronofsky. Aronofsky yeah. And now the challenge here is to say, we don't want to talk about the director and the screenwriter. <laughs> we only want to see what's in there. Yeah. My favorite literary critic, actually, Harold Bloom, would fight very vehemently against this idea because he's very much of the nature to argue that Shakespeare was a genius and Shakespeare could have only written Shakespeare, you know, that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and so this is not necessarily a popular literary criticism. Uh, it is argued against very often because it is seen as being kind of narrow. Yeah. It's you're, you're taking away so much context, which is literally the point. <laughs> yeah. That is yeah. Wikipedia lists out some principles of formalism as written by a Russian scholar 
And I want to list these out here. The first is the aim is to produce a science of literature that would be both independent and factual. Hmm. So thinking of literature, not necessarily almost as an art form, but as a science. Yeah. It also says, since literature is made of language, linguistics will be a foundational element of the science of literature. The third principle is literature is autonomous from external conditions in the sense that literary language is distinct from ordinary uses of language, not least because it is not entirely communicative. Fourth is literature has its own history, a history of innovation and formal structures and is not determined by external material history. And then the last is what a work of literature says cannot be separated from how the literary work says it. And therefore the form and of a work farly from, far from being merely the decorative wrapping of an insol insoluble content is in fact part of the content of the work. I like that point a lot at the end. What a work of literature says cannot be separated from how it says it. That is kind of formalism in a nutshell. Uh, totally. To summarize it. Totally. And the first point that you listed there was um, saying the aim is to produce a science of literature that's independent and factual. So kind of like an objective, mm -hmm. um, you know, an objective way of doing this. That I, I'm, re I'm recalling now, I'm remembering like even one specific essay that I wrote for a class, like a capstone piece. Um, and I think part of that did appeal to me because, you know, if you, you do enough um, English classes and you, this will be the one of the kind of um, easily dismissed, but often heard criticisms of like somebody in an English major, an art major, which is just like, oh, yeah, um, you know, this symbolizes, um, you know, man's struggle against um, whatever. <laughs> and it's just like, I, I actually, I think on Parks and Rec, there's a line, it's art, anything can mean anything. <laughs> and, um, and that's not true, right? Like, that's, yeah. that's bad literary criticism to be like, oh, Huckleberry Finn symbolizes, you know, um, I don't know. Yeah, like um, sexual repression. It'd be like, I mean, maybe, but you'd have to point to something in the text and show me that. Like, you'd yeah. have to, you can't just say, this is how I, what I think it's like, right? And so that was one thing that did appeal to me was to be able to sit down and be like, like, I always loved if there was something I could count in an analysis. And so I remember turning in papers where I was like, I counted in this short story the number of times that it used the word love or the number oh. of times that like, um, you know, uh, whatever this, this event happens like this happens or, or compared to ideas like the word love is used, you know, 27 times, but this other word is used this, this many times. It, does that tell us something? Maybe it does. And, um, and so the, I, I, I kind of get the, the appeal behind that, right? Like this, it's not arbitrary. It's not just whatever you think is happening is happening, but we're, let, let's like try and actually look at what's going on here and give it some you know objective um like catalog it so i i get the i th i think i can understand both the limits of this but also why people would like it right like like you said mm -hmm. it's more of a science and for certain people that's you know that's exactly that's the only kind of literary <laughs> theory they they'd want to get involved with right something that's less you know as they might see it loosey-goosey and more objective and like you know yeah, reasonable. Absolutely. And as we said, um, formalism has ebbed and flowed in popularity since its emergence. It's, it emerged around the turn of the century, uh, early 1900s. 
and I think probably saw the peak of its popularity in like the 40s and 50s. And ever since then has kind of ebbed in popularity. Wikipedia says it may be coming back. You know, I don't know what that means, but it does, <laughs> does say so. Um, I thought it was really fascinating that Leon Trotsky himself criticized formalism. <laughs> he said, quote, the methods of formal analysis are necessary but insufficient because they neglect the social world with which the human beings who write and read literature are bound up. The form of art is, to a certain and very large degree, independent. But the artist who creates this form and the spectator who is enjoying it are not empty machines, one for creating form and the other for appreciating it. They are living people with a crystallized psychology representing a certain unity, even if not entirely harmonious. This psychology is the result of social conditions. He also went on to quote a scholar who said, art was always free of life and its color never reflected the color of the flag which waved over the fortress of the city. <laughs> who knew that Leon Trotsky was such a literature head? That's exactly <laughs> that what I was really just thinking was like, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was just thinking. Like, where are like the political strongmen today and be like, you don't have thoughts about uh, the aesthetic qualities of literature. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If but I think like this is a, yeah, and I think this is a good call out that he's giving, which is definitely it's naive to think that no artist wrote the work, <laughs> and yeah. like, and that that artist doesn't live in a society with psychology and social right. conditions, you know, and that's that, just and that, and that an audience isn't going to appreciate it for certain reasons or react yes. in a certain way that we can yeah it's it's that's a really really good kind of explanation of why form like that's kind of an i, I have a hard time arguing against trotsky there's so like that's a really good explanation of maybe kind of the um the limits of formalism but at the same time um i do think formalism has its place because it can be really fun to be like let's forget about who wrote this or where it came from like why does this sentence or this paragraph or whatever affect you in this way or why you know it's that that can be kind of liberating in a way to not have to worry about um everything else i do think um you said wikipedia says maybe formalism is ascendant again i think that right now and you know maybe this is a really narrow reading or something but i think i think you'd have a really hard time today given at least the culture that i perceive selling formalism because part of what you have to say is it doesn't matter who wrote this or what the conditions were or what that person was like and i think that would be hard for um you know i think that that goes against kind of some of the tides that we're swimming in now like if somebody said okay this is a story about um you know this is a black experience or this is a queer experience but it doesn't matter who wrote it or the context or whatever I don't think that would, you know, I, I think we've, we, we're more on Trotsky's side on this, right? Which is like, you can't expect me to consume this or to, yeah. or to understand it without, you know, also understanding what else was, was going on, you know? That's true. I think the term that uh, gets thrown around a lot is intersectionality. Sure. Um, the fact that everyone has multiple identities that define their way of thinking and you can't really divorce your thought from those identities, you know? Yeah. Um, 
this so that's the overview of formalism and we've you know spent 15 minutes here i think kind of bashing it <laughs> as much as i like you know i like to talk about literary theory and i think what you said is true as well which is it's a good it's a good tool to have in the kit you know you don't yeah. use it all the time but sometimes it's important to break it out but i would uh close here with a quick defense of formalism which is i think there's a certain element that appeals to it um because we could get into this when we talk about deconstruction or post-structuralism later, but you can never really know the historical context of an ancient text. You yeah. can't know the mind of the author. You can't know what they intended. The only thing that you can know for sure is what you get out of the text. And I think formalism kind of speaks to that, you know? there's almost like an untrained element. It's like if you were to give Hamlet to a 10-year-old who didn't live in Renaissance England, has never heard of Hamlet before, and you just ask, what are your impressions of Hamlet? Then what you get back is kind of like a raw, you know, uneducated version of what the text actually is. And I think that's quite enlightening. I, I completely agree. I think it's just so, you know, as Trotsky would say, it's it's crazy to think that you can do this with literature and just say, none of this matters. Like yeah. none of the context matters. But I think I, I would reply and say, it's also just as crazy kind of exactly what you just said to think that you can or need to understand all of this context. Like it, it would be crazy to only, you know, look at things formalistically and it would also be crazy to never do it. Like you need yes. to do, mm -hmm. to do both because like you said, at certain times it's good to just say, you don't need to even know who wrote this poem or what the whatever about it is. Just read these, you know, words, see what Emily Dickinson is doing. And it it doesn't just like you said, just experience it and see what mm -hmm. it does for you. And um, that's that's really, really fun. So this brings us to the subject of our episode today that we're kind of going to eventually look at through through a formalist lens. Um, but it's the 2015 movie Spotlight. So Spotlight, like I said, was released in 2015. It's based on real events, and it's a telling of the story of a small group of reporters um, as they slowly peel back layers of secrecy to uncover a, um, a hidden scandal um, that implicates people in power um, in Boston. It stars some of my very favorites, actually. Um, the the kind of headline cast is Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, John Slattery, and Stanley Tucci. Um, I don't have a lot of grand theories in life. I think that was a get to know you question early on. Would you have a grand, any grand theories? Um, mm. But I do have one about film. And that is, I have never been watching a movie and thought, either of these two thoughts. The first one is there are too many Nazis dying in this movie. <laughs> uh, I've never had that thought. It's just never happened. And then the second one is um, I've never thought this movie has too much Rachel McAdams in it. Oh, so true. <laughs> which, which is based, 
I think at the time when I developed the grand theory in 2007, it, that was very much like a pubescent um, <laughs> urge telling me that there's never too much Rachel McAdams. But I also now can add that she's also really fabulous in almost every movie. She's oh, in, so. she's so good. She's and just, you know what? This is a good example of her uh, ability to adapt, I think. Right? I totally she's agree. So yeah. versatile. Yeah. yeah. I totally agree. Um, I also think that I never tire of watching Stanley Tucci. I think he's great. Oh, so good. Yeah. And he's probably, we'll get into this in the movie, but he's probably my, like the character I've thought about the most since I watched this movie. I watched this movie maybe a month ago. And I, I've thought about his lines and kind of his, um, oh, his yeah. character the most. He's an interesting mm-hmm. guy. Um, anyway, the movie is set in the year 2001 and it revolves around, um, no pun intended, the Boston Globe. <laughs> um, <laughs> revolves around the Boston Globe's, quote, spotlight team. And the spotlight team is a group of reporters who do deep dive, kind of long-term, multi-article investigations of big stories. So literally, we're going to shine the spotlight on this and kind of unleash our most tenacious reporters who are going to do not just one story, not three stories, but, you know, really take, maybe spend some a year getting into what this, you know, getting to the bottom of this. So that's the spotlight crew. And um, when a new editor takes over at the Globe, he sees an article that he finds interesting. And it's about a lawyer claiming that the Archbishop of Boston knew about um, knew and helped kind of cover up a priest's um, history of sexually abusing children. So he sees this article and he says, why are we not pursuing this? I'm really fascinated by this. Tell me what you could tell me about this story. Um, Initially, the paper, the reporters of the paper kind of balk at this and say, this is kind of a nothing story. It's been reported on before. This is just sort of one isolated incident. There's, it's really not a great story. This lawyer, you know, we're not even sure he's, he's all there or whatever. But um, they're encouraged to keep digging. And as they, as they do, they slowly realize that all of the explanations and all of the dead ends that they've believe, you know, exist um, are that, that they thought meant the story was kind of a nothing burger actually is evidence of a cover-up so all of those dead ends and explanations are have been crafted by the catholic church in boston to cover up a wide-ranging kind of abuse scandal eventually this lawyer who is you know representing clients and saying there's this kind of conspiracy going on he meets with the reporter opens up and allows his clients to speak with the journalists this opens the floodgates as the journalists realize that not only was is it true that this archbishop was covering for one priest, but that there are many more abusive priests and that not only did this archbishop know, but other people much higher in the Catholic hierarchy knew. And um, they were um, they not only knew about it, the entire church had a system for moving abusive priests around so as to obscure the nature of the problem and avoid kind of um, liability and and being found out. So this transitions from being a local problem or a local story to being kind of across the board corruption, an international story. Um, And there's at one point an expert portrayed in the film claiming that um, as many as 9% of all Catholic priests um, are likely to abuse children based on his research. So it kind of balloons as they as they dig deep into it. The story's told um, to to be. I'm I'm gonna bust out my best formalist chops at this point. Uh, <laughs> the story is told in 129 minutes. It's in color. It's in English. <laughs> um, and the final element of the film is a series of paragraphs, text that comes up, 
It explains the real-life statistics of abuse among Catholic priests in Boston, so kind of the full picture of what these reporters were getting at, as well as the locations around the world where there have been similar cover-up scandals, and the list is truly shocking. Dozens and dozens and dozens of um, other um, places where similar similar things have happened. So that's an overview of Spotlight, um, kind of the, the story that's told in it. I was just about to say how it was received and what people thought about it, but I realized that's probably outside the bounds of where we should go with formalism. I think maybe, at least for now, I think maybe that's not as important as most of what I've just said about how, uh, how the story is put together and told in the movie. So um, yeah, that's Spotlight. All right, so now we talk about Spotlight from a formalist lens. And before we do that, I just want to say that um, if Spotlight seems like a weird choice for formalist literary criticism, I will absolutely hear all arguments for that. I think that's a valid uh, thing to say. But I had a pretty deliberate reason for picking this movie for formalism. And that is the following thought. There are a lot of works of art that use true stories as their content. Think about like Titanic, the movie, uh, Gypsy, the musical, Serial, the podcast, Into Thin Air, the book. There's, you know, you can think of a million examples, right? Um, and they're just based on true events. They essentially are just taking something that happened in real life and putting it in art form. There are also a lot of really captivating news stories that don't become works of art. They don't get adapted into movies. If you want an example, you should listen to this podcast because <laughs> almost every episode we've done <laughs> is about a news story that never got made into a movie. And we always end up saying, somebody should make a movie about this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much so. Um, I'm interested to see after we've gone through this most recent week, is someone going to try and make the submarine into a movie were you following that story race i definitely was and I, th I had that exact same thought today i was like i wonder if this will ever be a movie and how it'll be told if it is right yeah. we we shall see give it like two or three years i guess uh, but the question that i always have is what makes a good news movie mm -hmm. and another question is is a movie the best format for this spotlight story Huh. And an extension of that is, would it work better as a different art form? Would it work better as a book or a podcast or a musical? Or is it best simply as a news article or a Wikipedia story? Um, something that came up recently, I think last year, was the Elizabeth Holmes story, which yeah. I experienced three different ways. I read about it in the news. I read the book, Bad Blood. I watched the TV show, The Dropout. Oh, and there was a fourth way, actually. There was also a podcast that was done, um, I think, by the journalist who wrote Bad Blood. Hmm. So that was when I really started thinking, like, what is the difference between all these forms, you know? And is one form more ideal than another for telling a true story? So let's hold that thought as we talk about Spotlight. But... With regards to spotlight and formalism, I think my first question, Race, is what does being a movie do to the spotlight story? 
Oh, that's a really good question. And as I try and kind of answer it, I will say that when you said, okay, for formalism, I want to do Spotlight. I was like, all right. And then I watched Spotlight. And my first thought was, why this one for formalism? I really was confused. <laughs> but as I've thought about it more, I've, I've got a bunch of things I'm excited to talk about. So well, well done. It's a good pick. <laughs> Thank, you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. What does being a movie do to this story? Well, one thing I can say is, or there's a few things. So first of all, well, I mean, books, books and podcasts and everything could do this too, but I do think that there's um, a certain element of suspense maybe is, a, is perhaps the wrong word, but a movie can kind of foreground things in a certain way. And I'll, you know, with my formalist hat on say, this movie begins, the first portion of this movie, um, what you see is a flashback. So oh, you, yeah. see, you see, I think it's like 1974 or something like that. Police station in Boston. A mother is in the police station complaining, you know, b- filing charges saying my child was abused by a Catholic priest. And then you watch the cover up kind of happen. You see some other Catholic official come in and kind of talk the mom out of it. You see a prosecutor come in and tell the police, hey, we're going to make all this go away. Don't tell anybody this happened. And then that's never really mentioned again. That just you just see that at the beginning. Um, and that kind of creates some tension. So like you were saying, what 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 makes a good news movie? I think one of the things that makes this movie succeed, at least for me, is we know what the story is. Like we know the truth because of that first scene. Right. Like we know that's not really a question of is this going on? Is, is this story mm, yeah. true? We know that it's true and we are with, but the reporters don't, right? Like the reporters are having to figure it out and piece it together and wonder, is this a real story or, you know, is it, is it as bad as this lawyer's telling us or whatever? And so I thought that did something interesting in that um, the audience knows what's going on and is feeling the frustration. One of the main feelings you'll feel is like you're feeling frustrated or helpless or maybe even trapped by the system. That's like, we know what happened, but it's all just keeps getting covered up. And so in that way, it kind of, it, it, um, it's an experience that might echo in some small way, like the plight of a victim who I know what happened. No, but no one will listen to me. Right. Or, or this story is, isn't being told the right way. And so um, that was something about the form and about the way that this movie as a movie kind of showing you an image, letting you witness kind of the, the crime, the cover up occur, and then spending the rest of the movie try and, you know, pull back and, and um, cleanse kind of that wound. That was an interesting, an interesting thing that happens um, that happens in this movie. And um that also brings me to one other thing that I kind of wanted to say, which is this movie, it's not quite a Cassandra story, but it is close. Are you familiar with that kind of term from? Ooh, I don't think I am. I've, I've heard it, but I don't know it. This is one of my most <clears throat> favorite kind of like principles or, or tropes in literature. Yeah. For some reason, it just, it just really does something for me. I think it's so interesting. And there's a lot of good art that is in this um, kind of mode which, you know, genres and modes are very important to formalists. So um, Cassandra is a figure in mythology who, I believe it was Apollo, one of those old horny Greek gods, somebody, um, I'm not a mythology person, so forgive me, but she <laughs> she um, angers a god and her curse for eternity is that she can see the future and can 
predict the future, but no one will believe her prophecies. Oh, okay. And so that's the thing that you'll see in literature sometimes is it's like, oh, this this character is a Cassandra figure, mm. uh, meaning that you know they they can't, no one will will listen to their warnings or no one will hear kind of their um, their prophecies. And one of the big ones that's um, as I was learning about that, that I, I remember in school was Jaws. And I think that's one thing that really kind of the engine that drives Jaws is you have this police chief who knows that there is a dangerous shark out there and no one will listen to him. He can't get anybody to take him seriously. And so that's one of the kind of pleasurable points of that movie is you're along the ride with this guy who you know is right. And all these ding-dongs won't listen to him. Um, And so it's kind of it's a trope that appears over and over. If you sit and think about it for a minute, you'll be like, oh, yeah, this movie has that and this movie and this book. And um, so this is kind of in that mode as well. Um, a a the you know, truth with a capital T or 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 some important truth is is not being recognized. And the the kind of frustration that comes with that. Right. Like the um, the lies and the deceit. It's um, it's a frustrating thing to go through. And so. Those are kind of my big overarching thoughts about this movie as a film. And I'm just realizing you haven't seen Jaws, have you? No, I haven't. I, haven't I need to. <laughs> well, that's no spoiler, but that is a good kind of um, a kind of a, a taste for you to get you to go watch Jaws. Very much so. <laughs> no, I totally agree. And I think an important element um, that I was thinking about for sure is the stakes feel very tangible in this movie Mm. in a way that when I was a teenager and this story was coming out, I was blind to. Uh, If you were to read about this story in the newspaper or on Wikipedia, you don't really get a sense of like the tension that's driving most of the film. And the script is really good at bringing in stakes. You know, they even start by mentioning that the paper is in trouble, the readership is down, and they need a story that's going to help the paper thrive. Uh, They also explain that 53% of the readers are Catholic, and they might be averse to hearing negative press about the church. Uh, So they bring in a lot of elements, and there's stakes through the whole thing, really. There's, I think every scene has a really good tension underneath it. Uh, those are just things that it's kind of harder to get from a news article sometimes. Totally. You know, you don't really see the back end of things. Another thing that is unique to cinema as an art form is acting. So when you read a newspaper story, there's no actors. You don't have Rachel McAdams telling it to you, you know. Mm-hmm. What do you think the acting does for this movie? That's a great point. So that was one of the things that I was thinking about when you said, you know, how would this be? experience in a novel or in a whatever like seeing a person like there's a really powerful scene where this guy finally is like okay fine i'll tell you like i've never told anybody but i'll tell you and he sits Mm -hmm. there and just kind of explains how um he was taken advantage of and sexually abused as a child and the kind of the gaslighting and the lying and the manipulation that that brought him there and that scene is very powerful it's kind of got a slow zoom on this guy's face and he's kind of like a rough um blue collar kind of that's kind of how he's portrayed he's like from south boston and he's like you know you get the sense like i don't talk about my feelings very often yeah and so watching an actor you know so not only am i getting the story not only am i getting what maybe you could get from a newspaper which is you know, this is how the abuse progressed. This is the, these are the incidents that occurred, and this is how it was kept secret. 
but watching somebody experience um, embarrassment and shame and kind of portray those things um, is a very different experience, right? Like that rather than just reading exactly what happened, watching somebody um, even pretending to um, tell the story. Yes. But also the emotion that comes with it. Um, that's a, that's a completely different experience and, and literally just seeing faces in a novel, you won't see faces mm-hmm. and in a podcast, you won't see faces and watching, um, seeing faces in this, in a story that's really about people and pain and suffering and, you know, um, and being lied to and being taken advantage of. That's a, that's, you know, that's a prime place for human, you know, for the face looking into the eyes of these people. And so um, that made it a really interesting kind of piece of art to experience by looking at people, you know, and them expressing their emotions at me through a film. Very much so. The visual element, I don't think we can overstate how important that is to this, because like you said, you all of a sudden see the people behind it, even though this is a, you know, it's acting, it's not the real victims. Uh, their portrayal of what's going on is really, really powerful. <clears throat> and I, in particular, was really impressed with that scene when I think it's all in the same scene, actually, and they keep cutting between the two victims that are testifying. Yeah. And you kind of have them on opposite ends of the spectrum. You have one victim who is gay and is, like, comfortable with his homosexuality, and he's, like, learned to overcome in the wake of being sexually abused. And then you have the other guy who is actually like horrified by homosexuality. He's worried that if the story gets out, people will call him gay, you know, that That's his right. family will find out, things like that. These are literally just opposite ends of the spectrum here. Yet they both experience the same abuse as children. And I just thought that was really, really powerful. Totally. Another element that is visual that I think is really important is the Boston element of everything. You, in this movie, get to see Boston. You get to see the skyline and the city and the water. You get to see the cold weather in the winters. You get to see people speaking in Boston accents. And I think most important of all, the Boston culture is so critical in illustrating how the citizens of Boston relate to the church. And that was something that before I saw this movie, I definitely did not understand but they really bring it home a lot of times. Like Rachel McAdams' own family, her grandma is obsessed with the church. Yeah. And as a journalist, it would be really hard for her to admit to her grandmother that she's writing a story that's going to expose the church, you know? Yeah. Well, at one point, this is another scene I think about a lot. Her and another reporter are kind of talking about, you know, this has been a rough few months. And she says to this other reporter, she says, I can't even go with my grandma to church anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And very powerful. Um, yeah. And there's also several really nice visual scenes of kind of the Boston, like a, a, a neighborhood or the skyline that's kind of being dominated by a big steeple and a big cross and the big churches that are in the neighborhoods, you know, the Catholic churches in this, in this, you know, largely Catholic city of Boston. So you get those kind of nice visuals as well. There's a scene when they each go around and they say their relationship to the church. Rachel McAdams says she's a lapsed Catholic. One of the guys says, I used to go, but now I go with my wife to a Presbyterian church. It's clear that all of the journalists involved have a very close connection to the church and that they all grew up in the Catholic church. Yeah. 
Um, I think the conflicts as well just come across a little bit clearer in the movie simply by having a script and actors to kind of elaborate on them. One of the conflicts that I really loved is when the new head of the paper comes in and he wants to do this story and he says, we're going to need to get those documents. And the journalist says, you want to sue the church? Yeah. <laughs> like in disbelief, you know? Yeah, and that, that happens a few times. People are like, but, but wait, hold on, the church? Yeah. yeah. And that's one of those things that it's not going to be found in a Wikipedia article, you know? Right. Or if it was in a book, it might not read as expressively as the actor that's giving the performance. Totally. You see a lot of the delicate nature of journalism. I thought that was really impressive. Like you said, there's victims who are reluctant to testify or who have to be kind of coaxed. And I found myself like in awe of each of the journalists like doing their job. The yeah. one who's kind of running literally through the library trying to get the documents and get them copied, et cetera. Or Rachel McAdams, who is, she really has to treat her um, sources with care. A lot of them yeah. are very reluctant to give any detail and she has to work really, really hard to express that she does care about them and wants to tell the story. Yeah, she felt almost more like a therapist in some yes. scenes. And mm -hmm. I think literally is like holding people's hands and that that's her her skill set and her approach. And then like you said, yeah, Mark Ruffalo's like cursing people out and like, come yeah. on, just let me in. I just need <laughs> it for five more minutes, you know. So yeah, very yeah, it definitely did as I was watching, was like, Man, it'd be cool to be a to be like a hard boiled reporter. These guys are awesome. Like it, it yeah. was a very um very cool insight into kind of the dynamic world of people who for a living just get to the bottom of stuff very cool it's an amazing job and one that just does not have a rule book you know you can't yeah. learn in school how to be rachel mcadams doing this you know yeah. she's really going off of like intuition and i think that's incredible there's a really cool i think period piece element to this movie that is not very loud and sometimes when i watch it i forget that it's set in 2002 until you start looking really closely at everything. The computers are old. They're making copies of stuff. All the cars are old. There's an ad for AOL. Um, of course, eventually, one of the plot points in the movie is that 9-11 happens during the process of the investigation. Yeah. Um, all of that, I think, comes across really well visually in the film in a way that just wouldn't work in other forms. Hmm. And this element of like reminding people of what time it is, it's important for viewers now because it reminds us of what the inner, what the world was like pre-internet. And the priest yeah. actually in the church like specifically calls this out. And he says, as a priest, the internet makes me anxious. You can find all the answers there on the web. Should I be worried about job security? And it's played off as a joke, you know, like the priest is saying, don't talk to the internet, you need to talk to God. But that's a real element here. <laughs> and it's an especially important element when it comes to journalism, because in 2002, the way to get your information was to buy the Boston Globe in print. Yeah, that's a great point. That's That line is also, I remember that line. And that's also a little haunting now. Isn't also a little of, chilling? Yeah. yeah, thinking, well, and thinking about, because the, you know, the thrust of this movie is, information that was kept down and kept secret yes. and hidden and in a world today of you know men maybe this wouldn't translate exactly to how it sounds but like in a world of smartphones and twitter and 
you know, cameras everywhere and stuff. Um, you know, it that's that is an element that maybe you wouldn't think of on the first viewing. But could this scandal have gone on as long, you know, or, or is there something poetic about the fact that this all came about at the birth of the Internet, which mm-hmm. is kind of the yeah. ultimate, you know, shining a light in every corner right like and so in that in that sense when the priest says that the internet makes me anxious you can find all the answers there should i be worried about job security um you know the other implication being all of you know the internet is going to reveal all of one's sins and you can't hide anymore so am i gonna be out of a job because my you know my the skeletons in my closet will be known very, very cool. I hadn't thought of that element of it, but yeah, it's very much a, a movie set in 2002, which is fun. Very much. Um, as a movie, uh, you know, even though this is a true story, a movie has to have a screenwriter. And in this case, the director is the same as the screenwriter. I think the director directed it by himself and he wrote with another person to write the script of the film. But it's a true story, so uh, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, I have to ask, why is a screenwriter necessary for this movie? Or what is the function of the script actually doing? Oh, great question. One of the things that I, um, whenever, so you and I both worked at a writing center helping students write essays Mm -hmm. and papers and all sorts of things. And one of my favorite kind of um, techniques, especially if somebody was trying to do like literary analysis, is to say, think about all of the other ways that this story could have been told. Or mm. like think about everything the author didn't do. Yeah. And then think about how else could this have come about and what might that have looked like? And so that's kind of w- another form of this question that you're asking, which is like, it's a true story. We, we know what happened. So why is a screenwriter necessary? And, you know, the screenwriter here made several, many decisions. One of them, for instance, was I could easily envision this movie taken place from the perspective of the victims or of victims. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? I was abused as a child. Nobody believed me. The priest, you know, threatened my family or intimidated us or, you know, gaslit me or whatever. And I've lived with shame all these years and it's wreaked havoc on my personal life and it's kind of ruined me. And now I'm being given the opportunity to make things right and maybe there's some sort of redemption or at least a little bit of relief from my suffering. Like, that's a completely legitimate um, way of telling this story. And as a matter of fact, maybe the more obvious one, right? Like tell the story from the perspective of the person who was abused and then see the story come out. But that is definitely not the take. The take is, or the the perspective, the form that this story comes in is let's watch this happen through the eyes or through the experience of people working at a newspaper, which is again, kind of odd. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess the newspaper broke the story, but are they the most important people in the story? And I don't think they are, but as I kind of said earlier on, by by this screenwriter saying, you know what, I'm going to tell this story, the facts of which maybe aren't in dispute, but I'm going to tell it from this perspective. Like I said, at least one thing that it adds to it is the pure like frustration and kind of anxiety of trying to get the story out there. And that's mm-hmm. very well told through reporters who are meeting, you know, hitting dead ends and being lied to and being kept away from the information they need. And so you empathize with them and in that way the the kind of cover-up and the conspiracy and the deception is really impactful for somebody watching this movie i think it was for me in a way that maybe would have been harder to do or wouldn't have been as 
as um, impactful if you told it from a different perspective. But somebody who's literally trying to get to the bottom of the truth turns out to be a great vehicle for this story. And so, um, you know, I'm glad that this, there was a screenwriter involved and they said, I guess I could tell it from the from I could tell it from the priest perspective. I could tell it from yeah. you know, all of these perspectives, but I'm going to choose because of, you know, some vision that I have um, to tell the story, the same story that could have been told in another way, but from this perspective that, you know, brings some, some meaning to it. Very much so. Um, I like the quote from Stephen Sondheim again about what art is. And he says, art is edited truth, edited to give it shape, mm -hmm. rhythm, speed, and punch. And literally here the art is actually truth spotlight yeah. is a true story i think it's almost completely historically accurate there might be a couple things that um they take liberty with but i think for the most part it's quite accurate and i love that edited to give it shape rhythm speed and punch because for all of us that were living in 2002 the story broke but it was also over the span of multiple months it wasn't the only thing that we were thinking about. I didn't pay close attention to it because I was a teenager and didn't really, you know, know what was up. I just was like, oh, Catholic Church, whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, when you distill it into this two-hour, what was it, 129 minutes? Yep. 129-minute <laughs> script. Now, all of a sudden, it has a shape, and it has rhythm, and it has speed, and it has punch. Totally. in a way that living through it just wouldn't be the same. Well, uh, and I think the, I think the movie itself nods to that. So that's, that is such a great line from Sondheim because yeah, give take out the, you know, when it says edit it to give it shape or whatever, take out the things that, you know, maybe are distracting from the, the drama or the, you know, kind of the whatever. Um, and so for instance, in the movie, we see that nine 11 obviously threw everything for a loop all of the yeah. newspaper that's what everybody turned to and in the movie as strange as this might sound 9-11 happens and you're like oh great now this is in the way right yeah. like this, huge, <laughs> yeah. this huge awful tragedy thing that happened but you're like oh crap stinking 9-11 yeah. they're gonna ruin this right and yeah. so um you know th that's a cl th like i said um good on sondheim for this because yeah if you t if you, we got we got distracted by 9-11 or if you had to experience this as it came out like you said it wouldn't be as impactful but you compress it you take away the things that might have broken your attention and you you know you put it in a certain light um and you you emphasize the rhythm and you put the speed on it that you want and all of a sudden you have a story that's really incredible because like like you said you could get on wikipedia and say there were these documents they were suppressed eventually they became public in a court hearing Okay, great. But we get to watch Mark Ruffalo like literally scamming his way into government offices so that he can get these stinking papers, right? Like he's yeah. he's got to get them. And so mm -hmm. that that same story could have been told many, many ways, but watching it happen in that way like like Sondheim says you get to see the rhythm and the speed and so we see the truth but in this perspective that just is so impactful. Yes, and I think I mean Every time I watch this movie, I'm just, like I said, I'm always amazed by it for the content more than anything else, you know. But I also walk away every time with the sense that the form is just doing everything that only a movie can do. And I really do believe that. I think almost every scene is taking the true story and saying, 
how do we make this in something that people can watch and understand in a way that a newspaper or a book cannot do? Totally. I think Spotlight just nails it. So uh, formalism aside, is there anything to say about Spotlight from the other lenses of criticism that we've talked about? Anything from feminism, Marxism, psychological criticism? Oh, wow. Um, well, obviously, you could say with um, Marxism, you could look at systems that exist to perpetuate, you know, injustice or, or um, you know, that are disenfranchising um, the weak or anybody. And I think that's, you know, that that's obviously to be read here. This is a story about corruption and people in power kind of, um, you know, helping themselves. Um, so you could definitely go down that route. Um, as far as like feminism or gender identity. Um, the, feminism is a, a tricky one, I think, because there's almost no women in the movie. Yeah. Uh, until you realize that there are. Rachel McAdams is a really important woman in the movie. Her Nana is another important woman. And the judge that eventually, uh, I think the judge is listed as Irish Catholic, right. but eventually rules against the church in order to release the documents. And they mention how important of a precedent that is. Yeah. Um, she's also a woman, if I read that scene correctly. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know that there's a lot being said of... Um, you know, from like a feminist agenda. I think there's more, uh, and we haven't really talked about this, but it's kind of similar to feminism, more from like a queer reading of the story, mm. the role that homosexuality plays in this entire thing. Like we looked at earlier between the two victims and their different takes on homosexuality. I think that's, you know, definitely worth exploring. Totally, yeah. But uh, there's definitely a Marxist story here, and I think that's that's kind of amazing. The way, like you said, the way that it's framed from the point of view of the journalist almost gives it a Marxist feel. Because definitely. the journalists and the paper, they all of a sudden look like the underdogs, and they're trying to fight up against this system that's oppressing them. In this case, it's the church that has all the money and power to do whatever they want. And they're trying to, you know, find a weak link in order to bring them down. But they also mention the importance of religion to the poor of Boston. And the movie goes so far as to say that victims were largely targeted because they were poor. Mm. The priests would seek out victims knowing that the poor families didn't really have any resources to attack the church. And also that poor families really loved the church. Like, I think one of the victims says when the bishop came over, my mom put out cookies, <laughs> yeah. you know, like they were just obsessed that the bishop would even enter their home. Yeah. And I, I thought that was really amazing. Totally. And to go back to what you're saying about it being from the perspective of the journalists, um, and you're right from kind of a Marxist perspective. So Marxism talks about seizing the means of production, right? So like you got to take what creates value and use it for yourself. Don't let somebody else control that and you know thereby keep you within a system of their design so you you take the factory and then all of a sudden well look now i'm making the the weed or whatever and yeah and we can you know we can um share in the bounty ourselves and in this sense kind of the the means if if the commodity at, at stake as we've said before is the truth and so the means of production is an is an independent newspaper that's not afraid to find out what the truth is right so like Mm -hmm. that's a very it's kind of it becomes sort of a marxist um like he said it's got that marxist feel of the newspaper saying 
we are going to, um, you know, do what we can with this, with this material to benefit, um, you know, the people who need it, not let the system benefit those who are already in power. And so the truth is kind of the, if, if truth is the commodity, then the, the plant in which truth is produced is a newspaper, right? That's the, that's the factory. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. You know what? I'm also realizing, I think I was too dismissive of the feminist element. You can really make the case that this movie is very much about the patriarchy. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say is there might not be a lot of women, but that's because all the priests are men, right? All like, the priests are men. That's like the point, right? Yeah. yeah, that's that's a whole different angle on this. And, and you know, that's an interesting way that feminism or Marxism or whatever can come up is what isn't happening, right? So like, yeah, yeah, the absence of women in this movie and, you know, maybe the, the problematic nature of that or whatever um, might be part of this part of the story. No footnotes today. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow the show, you can check us out on Instagram at race and Tyler talk Wikipedia. Or you can find us on Twitter at Race and Tyler Pod. We'll see you next time.